You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investors with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry Parker, where we did a deep dive into another trend-following strategy that has reported some amazing returns in the past 15 months or so, and discussed in detail some of the pros and cons in running such a highly leveraged trend-following system. But before we go into any of this, Moritz, great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things in Germany? Really good. Well, I'm doing really good. Thank you, Niels. Nice to be back on the show. Enjoyed your last episodes with Jerry, Rob, and Mark. Things in Germany are, well, the weather's good, but we're still in that damn lockdown. Can't wait to get out of it. So other than that, everything's fine. What's your next date where they're going to revise that, by the way? <laughs> Who knows? Angela Merkel, I think, is going to make an announcement on Monday, possibly with a new hard lockdown for two to four weeks okay. because we're in that third wave of coronavirus and we don't have enough vaccines, which in and by itself is, is really tragic. I mean, we're one of the producers of the vaccines. BioNTech is a German vaccine and we just, the European Union just being great at being the European Union, couldn't order enough or didn't order enough. They could have, but they didn't which is why we're really lagging behind vaccinations relative to other countries. Yeah. Let's see. I mean, look, if I don't want to be in lockdown in the summer, I can probably do this for another two, four weeks, something like that. But I guess at some point people here are going to be running out of fuel and they can no longer take it. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing that in many places. In terms of a quick market wrap, I mean, it was a relatively quiet week post the holiday week in the fixed income markets. At least the yield curve was unchanged, despite the fact that there was a ton of new issues. Of course, this was expected, and it's uh, happening just before earnings season kicks in. Next week, the producer price index actually got out on Friday morning with a 25-minute delay. I think there was some kind of computer glitch, but it came out at a high 4.2% year-on-year, which is well above the 2.8% that was last month's reading. However, traders pretty much ignored the surprise and the bond markets were also quite muted for the day. The consumer price index is due to be released on Tuesday. And forecasts are looking for 2.5% year-on-year. Now, the Fed has repeatedly said they intend to look past any transitory inflation. So it'll be interesting to see if the traders also look past a similar outsized consumer inflation number next week. But in contrast to the calm fixed income markets, US equities had a pretty good week up sharply in the uh, last week. And that, of course, was following the previous Friday's very strong employment number. And so we think we saw a gain of around 2.7%. Now we're above 4,000 in the S&P for the first time. And actually, we're already above uh, most uh, of the economist year-end price targets, which on average was 4,099. So that much goes to trying to forecast these things. 
And along with the continued optimism in equities, um, the supersonic boom in SPAC, these special purpose acquisition companies, has now also reached almost $100 billion this year into these blind pooled vehicles. And that is blowing past the prior record, which was last year, at $83 billion for the whole year of 2020. But of course, the engine fueling all of these lofty prices does not look to stop anytime soon, as Robert Kaplan, the Dallas Fed president, defended the Federal Reserve's decision to maintain near-zero overnight interest rates in tandem with the ongoing $120 billion per month in asset purchases. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, he said, when we're in the middle of a crisis, we should be aggressively using our tools. So I agree with what we're doing now in terms of the asset purchases and stance of policy in general. And uh, the Fed itself is forecasting 6.5% growth in GDP this year, along with 4% um, unemployment rate at the end of the year. And I couldn't help thinking that, what does a real crisis look like if Mr. Kaplan sees 6.5% growth of GDP and a below natural unemployment level as a crisis. But anyways, we probably won't get that answer. So Moritz, that's what's happening in the um, outside world, but what's going on in your portfolio and how things shaping up? I really need to juggle at these forecasts. They always <laughs> happen and it's always funny. Not forecasting anything as, as far as trend-following trading is concerned. I'm really happy with my numbers at this point in time. Just looking back, I think, Niels, we spoke last in March. I ended March, uh, let me have a look here, 4.86% up, and I'm slightly up a bit more than 60 basis points in April. What that means is that uh, year-to-date, I'm about 16% ahead, and I've just completed six positive months in a row. And I had a look right. at my system, and this has only happened one other time in 2014 in the period April, let me see, April to September, sorry, April to, yes, September. And that was the time when we had big trends in euro and big trends in, in, in oil, I think, as well. I've had a couple of times where I had five positive months in a row, probably three or four times that has happened. But six is, uh, six is uh, the record. And now if May comes in positively, then that would be a new record with seven. I think you've had more than that even at done. I think you've once well, had 12 or so in a row. No, this is actually no? quite interesting because of, so if we look at our long track record and this would be probably, I'm thinking about the flagship program. So 35 years, uh, maybe 37 years by now. Actually, I think our record is eight, eight months in a row. We touched seven months in a row in 2019 and because that's when I did the statistics and mm. I went back to look. So you getting to six, maybe seven this month, I mean, that's fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah. And it probably should make me worry that this party is going to be over. A down month can only be 10 basis points. It doesn't have to be a disaster. <laughs> yeah, right? no, exactly. And the month-end observations, they're arbitrary as well. Sure. It's just our way of looking at things and the industry standard. But no, look... Remember looking back to 2020 when we had a, a rougher period for trend following for essentially most of 2020 and then I only got out of the hole toward the end of the year. And and so now, three, four months later, the picture has completely changed and it's great fun to be a trend following trader at, at this point in time and really nothing to complain about. Also, my portfolio has changed quite a bit. Remember last time we spoke, it was predominantly long. 
When we spoke, I think in January and February, I reported to you that it's 100% long. And that was true. I had absolutely zero short positions on. And then it started to change a bit in March, but only slightly as some of those trends didn't continue and they were turning around and I got kicked out of some of the markets. I got kicked out, by the way, out of Nikkei, which was a position that I had on for a very long time. Now, the longest long position that I have on is copper since June of last year. But now my portfolio is much more diversified in terms of longs and shorts. It's probably, I didn't count it, but just eyeballing it, it's probably 65, 35 or 70, 30, something like that. Still leaning towards the longs, but the shorts are coming back. Most of the shorts are, by the way, in bonds, Canadian bonds, the bobble, the boon, euro dollar, short the Japanese yen, by the way, as well. What else? Let me see. The 10-year note, the long bond. Yeah, it's pretty much all bonds. And equity is still strong. Most of the commodities still very strong. The grains, I'm not getting kicked out of those yet. And, and emissions, yeah, it's just uh, jumping at me right here. That's a great trade for me. I have that on also for a very long time now. And it's moving higher. I think it's at 43 or something like that now, euro per ton. So so all good. Let's see what comes next. Let's see indeed. So on our side, on the trend following side, this week was actually a pretty strong week and not surprising, driven by gains in equities. And as they continue their march, certainly in the US, maybe in a couple of other countries to new all-time highs. Grain, soft currencies and volatility did well as well. It was really just energies and fixed income that was pretty quiet overall. My own trend barometer finished the week at 32. That's actually quite a weak, not a, not a super weak, but a kind of a weak reading. And I have noticed that there is uh, at least some of the managers that I follow on a daily basis where they're slightly down for the month. So it's probably in line with that, so to speak. On our own uh, volatility side, that was also a positive week. There are a couple of interesting observations that I got from our team. For example, the implied correlations in the S&P remain low in comparison to the last year which also kept the VIX index at very low levels uh, this week. In fact, the lowest since the beginning of COVID. But tail risk actually still remains pretty costly in terms of protecting you against dramatic falls in the S&P 500. And of course, maybe what's quite of interesting is that we saw quite a big trade, maybe one of those whales showing up in the VIX market this week. We saw 200,000 July 2021 VIX call spreads with strikes uh, of 25 on the long side and 40 on the short side were traded. And according to my sources or my colleagues, um, that requires at least a, a drop of 6% in the S&P before that becomes a profitable trade. So yeah, so a few interesting things on that side. But anyways, our own strategy mainly profited from some of the steepening positions that it had on. In terms of my own trend-following uh, model portfolio, it also had an up week this month. It's up 1.69% for the month, up 11.03% for the year. And the performance is mainly coming from these Group 2 models, so the long-sided models, 
Group 1 models, classical trend models, were also up, but the fast-reacting models were down like a quarter percent so far this month. Sector attributions, again, not surprising. Equities, by far the biggest winner. Small gains in base metals and meats, and the worst sectors are really bonds and currencies. Also slight losses in precious metals. And then if we drill down single markets, the best ones are DAX and SMI and a little bit of lean hawks. And then at the bottom, we see US 10-year notes, the euro and the Japanese yen. And um, really quiet week in terms of trading activity did buy a little bit of SPY and US 10-year notes for the fast-reacting models and some gold and some NASDAQ. But I think it only did like five trades for the whole week and the risk to stop loosened up a little bit. So if it got stopped out of everything on Monday, it would lose something like 11.5%. And that's up from about 8% a week ago. So a little bit of uh, change. I was just looking at the, your, at my positions when you went through yours, and I've also seen the exit of this long Nikkei trade that we were both in. Very few shorts, in not that many positions in terms of markets, actually. And the oldest positions now only dates back to around um, o- late October, November time, and there's only a few. The rest is relatively new positions again, and that's because, I guess, my system is a little bit tighter in terms of the way it it stops itself out compared to your way of doing it, Moritz. Now, we've got a few questions from Jim, John, and Mark. Before we move into that, I wanted to bring up a couple of articles, one that you shared, Moritz, and one that, that Jerry actually sent over, and then also maybe a few other topics that we can dive into. But you sent something that I thought was interesting. We've talked about this before, but nevertheless, it is quite interesting. And it was an article that was reported in many of the magazines, Bloomberg, uh, Yahoo Finance, all sorts of things. It basically talks about quants getting ready to pounce the Chinese commodity boom. Now, you and I picked up on on commodities in general last summer when we started to see our models going long in commodities. So it's not necessarily this is something brand new. What is new about it is now the focus, and that's something you brought up before, the focus being on Chinese commodities because um, that is a source of potentially more diversification for many of our colleagues in the industry, of course. And we know that some of the bigger firms like Alpha Simplex, like Transtrend and Aspect and Man Group and Winton, and, and I think even yourself now, by now more, are involved in the Chinese futures markets and therefore also these commodities. So I've got a few questions maybe that you can dive into, but maybe you want to talk a little bit about what you took away from the article and, and what you see happening on the ground, so to speak, when it comes to the opportunities in these mm. markets. And maybe we also talk a little bit about some of the challenges with trading them. Yeah, I'm not surprised that trend-following CTAs become interested in these markets because we like diversification. We like to spread our bets long and short, and the more independent the more independently we can place those bets, the better it is. And there are a couple of markets in China, Chinese commodities, which are, I think, extremely diversifying to our existing portfolios. There's, I think, five internationalized markets available right now, which are more easily accessible, at least for Europe-based traders. I'm not so sure about US-based traders, but you could trade copper, you could trade a, an onshore China oil contract, etc., you could trade iron ore. But those are markets that you can trade elsewhere as well. You can trade iron ore in Singapore, you can trade crude oil in, on the NYMEX, and you can trade copper on the COMEX or on, on the LME. And 
they are very highly correlated. There's some firms involved in arbitraging them, like doing a location arbitrage trade between LME and COMAX and, and the Chinese exchanges. But that is a trade that is just not for me. It's it's a specialty trade and I'm not looking at that one. So, so maybe those I markets just interrupt really... you there. Can mm-hmm. I interrupt you there and ask sure. just a, a general question? So those markets, as you say, you can trade them elsewhere. Why would you then even trade them in China, for example? Is there any advantage in trading them? Exactly. So I was just uh, mentioning the internationalized ones. Now, there's about 30 other markets that are not internationalized, onshore Chinese commodity markets such as glass, markets such as styrofoam, PTE, eggs, wild stuff, UB futures, things like that, which you cannot get elsewhere. Rice, a very liquid rice contract, much more liquid than rough rice that's traded in in the US. And those markets are diversifying because they zig when other markets in my portfolio zag. And that is why I like them. Trading eggs and glass and styrofoam in, in China really doesn't have anything to do with my positions in corn or WTI or the DAX index. So it is a source of diversification and that is... That really is the only thing why I like them. And I think that is the only thing why the other trend-following traders are keen at accessing them. So I have more questions for you as we Mm -hmm. dive into this. Because one of the things that I was a little bit surprised with when I read the article was, let's stay with this thing about the diversification. Then it says at some point, Chinese and U.S. corn contracts, for instance, only have a correlation of 0.02, sorry, 0.24. And I was wondering, how can two... I, I, of course, there can be differences in what crop it is and all of that. I'm sure there must be the reason. But two, two, two contracts, same market, but a correlation of 0.24, I mean, it surprised me. Do you know why that might be? Maybe they're taking different settlement times. If you're measuring correlation and you take the corn settlement on CBOT, the U.S. corn settlement on CBOT, and say you take, I mean, there's another corn contract traded in Paris. There's one more corn contract traded in South Africa. There's a corn contract traded in in China. But they're trading and settling at different times. So you would really need to have intraday data and do a slice, a time slice, a snapshot essentially at a common point in time and use that to calculate your correlations. I don't know. I haven't looked at those numbers. 0.24 strikes me as very low for a market that's essentially the same. I know that for copper and iron ore, the correlations are substantially higher, which is why I'm not trading them in China. And I have no interest in trading them in China because there's more liquidity and more established trading experience, at least for me, to trade copper on the COMAX or on the LME. But really, I do prefer the COMAX because it's the LME you're trading forward contracts. It's a different way of trading these things. So really, the interest only is in the stuff that doesn't exist elsewhere. And, so, and here, some people, if I can just add that, and sure. I have, I'm not sure if this is all correct, but... They're saying, there's reports out there that say that the trading participation in China is quite different compared to the trading setup and people trading in those markets, say in the United States or Europe or elsewhere in the world. Essentially saying that the Chinese markets are very much dominated still, even in the futures, by retail trading activity, which certainly isn't the case here, say in Germany, right? Most people, most like mom and pop retail people, they would never even touch a futures contract. Sure, some select few do, but 99.9% of them don't. They trade securities in their online brokerage accounts. And that seems to be different in China. 
And they're saying that because of that, you're facing retail and retail, say, is less informed about some of these markets, more subject and more driven by emotional biases, more keen to take profits and let losers run, these type of things. So therefore, you have different trading behavior, trending behavior in those markets because it's less impacted by commercials. I have absolutely zero way of proving that is true or correct. So I can just read those reports. It may be true, it may not be true. It doesn't, but at the end of the day, Niels, I think it doesn't really matter to me that much. I just look at the way those markets perform in the back test, put them in my system, treat them exactly the same way as I was would be treating COMEX Copper or the DAX or the Bund and see what it spits out. And w- without any doubt, it does improve the performance characteristics of my trend-following trading system. It comes up with better statistics, greater average gains, these type of things. So there's something there. The question then is, how do you get to those markets? And what price do you need to pay in order to trade them? And is it still worth it after you've paid that price? At the end of the day, it's a net game. If, if you're paying $5 for something to make $5, then it's zero. Then you can as well just let it go and not do it. And, and spare you the headache. But if it is a positive expected value there, then yes, you should be doing it. And so from memory, I mean, you were in the process of setting these relationships up. Have you done it? And I imagine you trade that only for your for your firm portfolio, right? Not necessarily well, yeah. for so, you as an individual. Uh, so how complex is it to do? There's, there's complex ways and there's less complex ways for a price. If you are, and, and let me say that first off, as a private person, I'm not trading those markets privately. And I think you'd need to have a very large account base in order to do that. So that either you're you're finding a counterparty that is willing to do an ISTA with you, nobody's doing an ISTA with Moritz, or you have a lot of capital that would allow you to go to China, get a license and an exemption, and essentially start a local business there, a wholly owned foreign entity that becomes licensed as a physical commodities trader in China. And then you can start interacting in these markets. It comes with all sorts of headaches in terms of currency conversion. You're not trading that stuff in US dollar, you're trading it in yuan, and these type of things. So I was never really interested in doing that. Winton and I think Aspect and Man, they have done that. They are, as professional systematic trading firms with a deep enough pocketbook and and probably clients also in China that they were making a business decision to say, for us, it's worthwhile to actually go to China and establish a presence there, pay for the people, pay for the lawyers, pay for the operational substance that we need to maintain on the ground, get the license, blah, 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 and all that type of stuff, and, and then trade in the markets. I never had an interest even in at looking at this because it's that to me seemed like a two-year project and time-consuming and you have to fly down there. I, I don't understand anything about the Chinese law and I just didn't have the interest in doing that. But you can find brokers and there's a couple of, I mean, I'll just mention two names. Two names, there's more, but two two firms that offer that service. Macquarie, I think they're great. They're fantastic. Goldman is doing the same. There's others. You can speak to JP Morgan, you can speak to UBS, but say Macquarie, right? So you can do an ISTA with Macquarie and benefit from Macquarie's on-the-ground setup in China. 
Macquarie is a specialized commodities trading firm, essentially. That's their heritage. That's their background. So they have the setup in China. And you can essentially piggyback off that. They have that. They trade it for you. And you trade essentially a lookalike swap on the futures contract. So through a total return swap under ISDA, you're making reference to an onshore China's future contract. And that mirrors the P&L through the ISDA into your trading account or fund. That service has a price tag. It is not for free. It is subject to negotiation, but it is certainly not cheap. I, I don't want to mention the price tag sure, here on that course. show. People need to essentially speak to, to those firms if, if they have an interest in doing that. And so, but what I can say is that on some of the markets that I would have had a strong interest trading them, for instance, Chinese government bonds, futures. I don't trade any Chinese government bonds, but I'd like to. But because Chinese government bond futures have a very low ATR or volatility, my position size, my notional position size in those markets would be relatively large. And the fee that's being charged is directly linked to the notional size that you're trading under that swap, which means in pure dollar terms, after conversion, your fee on your fee paid on the Chinese government bond futures contract is substantially higher in dollar terms compared to, say, X or natural gas, where you're only trading a few contracts. So the focus, therefore, zeroed in on those markets that essentially have a relatively high volatility, which means I'm not going to be trading a lot. And still at the same time, they have a lot of diversification benefit to my portfolio. And that's that. And then, of course, in an OTC relationship, the same with OTCFX, essentially. I mean, OTCFX, you're trading through multi-tealer platforms and you're just essentially a point-and-click type of thing, right? It's completely automated. Here, this is not true. It's say you have a master agreement, you're adding every trade to that master agreement under ISDA, but you're now adding a operational layer of complexity in addition to what you previously had when you were just trading futures contracts that wasn't there before. Which means that in a, as you are with done as well, in a licensed and institutional setup where everything is done in accordance with the rules and regulatory requirements, it just means that you need to have the people and the knowledge and the operational know-how to deal with these type of things. It is not, I think, extremely complex. I'm certainly used uh, uh, to working with ISDA and, and total return swaps on these type of things. But yes, it is different than a futures contract that just shows up in your FCM statement. Yeah. And do you? how do you view risks involved? I mean, are they predominantly tied to the ISTA agreement, so to speak, the fact that it isn't a futures contract and so on and so forth? Is that how you see it? I mean, obviously, when you hear people talk about the world and then politically, economically, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, you certainly could say that there are signs of China being a little bit on collision course with the West to a larger extent than it has been for for a few decades. I mean, do you factor those kind of things in or you're not too worried about it? Yeah, that that's an excellent question, Niels. Essentially, what you're saying is there could be legal or geopolitical risk associated with that over and above, say, the counterparty risks that I would have with my broker counterparty that is facing me on the other side of that total return swap under ISTA. There is a CSA, which is short for Credit Support Annex, which uh, details exactly what type of collateral is eligible under that swap relationship and when it needs to be paid. Uh, a lot of those CSAs and a lot of those collateral requirements have become increasingly strict 
in recent years, say the last eight, nine, ten years, a lot of that has changed to the daily exchange of cash collateral or you're posting eligible government bonds and even those might be subject to a haircut. Uh, whereas previously, say prior to the global financial crisis, when you know I was um, still on the other side of that business on a bank trading desk, those collateral requirements weren't as strict, right? You weren't called every day for collateral. It certainly wasn't uh, monitored intraday, yet alone end of day, right? Maybe something like once a week, but only when a certain threshold was met, sometimes once a month. And you could, if, if you want my corporate bond as a collateral, here you go, give me some haircut rate, these type of things. It is really no longer that way. There are some bilateral swap agreements where you can still do that. But regulation is now such that a lot of that stuff actually must be centrally cleared. If you're trading a vanilla interest rate swap, which I'm not doing, uh, but I just know that is the case, you need to centrally clear that stuff. There's an initial margin requirement and there's daily exchange of cash collateral. So that way, the system becomes more safe. And the major risk I see is still my counterparty risk. So you could say, well, look, something has happened in the past couple of days to Credit Suisse. Oops. So they've essentially lost one year's worth of P&L. 4.5 billion down. Then a couple of weeks earlier, they had a problem with Grensil, right? So it's, oops, well, what are they doing? If this is your bank, if MF Global is your bank and, and they have a mishap such as that and you're a client of theirs, then you may have a... But given that we're exchanging cash collateral on a daily basis, which means that my positive P&L, they need to send me that in cash. And if there's a negative P&L, I need to send them that in cash, that reduces my counterparty risk essentially to a one-day P&L and jump risk. Okay, so that is that is a risk that you need to be aware of. You are facing not a clearinghouse. You are facing a bank at the end of the day, and you need to find ways to mitigate that risk. So, okay, I'm, I'm aware of that risk. And it is, I would say, it is a greater risk than trading on NYMEX, period. Even though you as Niels or I as Moritz, we are not trading on NYMEX. It's actually our clearing broker doing that business yeah. for us. So we have exposure to their clearing broker. So it's it, that is not entirely risk-free too. Okay. And then, okay, so what else could be there? There could be legal risk in the sense that all of a sudden there's uh, Chinese rules or regulations coming out and saying, oh, you know what? All of those derivatives that make reference to our derivatives are now illegal and need to be unwound, or we just say we, we scratch them and they're worth zero or something like that could happen. I, I don't know. It Yes, it is. It, it, it does have a higher risk. I, I, I need to say that than trading on, on, on IMAX or Eurex or Liffy. But with everything that we're doing, nothing is entirely risk-free. We need to find ways to, first of all, be cognizant of that risk and identify it, right? If, if you were just closing your eyes and say, Oh, I don't want to. I, I want to look the other way. It'll it'll be fine. I think that is probably that that is a mistake. You should never do that. Take your time. Whether you're trading those markets next week or next year, I don't think it matters that much. Take your time to really understand the details. Do your due diligence on the broker. Ask exactly how the flows work and how they're converting currencies and these type of things. I find it very interesting. You learn a lot, and then try to understand those risks and like bucket them for you, evaluate them properly. And as with everything, position size accordingly. I'm definitely not interested in having a China futures only CTA that is 100% exposed to only these markets and no longer to any of the other markets. I wouldn't see why I would 
have an interest in doing that besides the risk characteristics that I've just mentioned. So yeah, size accordingly. Don't have all your risk there. And other than that, I think it's worth a look. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds interesting. But what's interesting, I want to go in in some completely different directions for a little bit, and then we'll come back to Jared's articles, and then we'll do the questions. But I want to say, so the first thing that just is, isn't just a comment, it's an observation of what's happening in our industry. And of course, for people who know the CTA industry well, I mean, I think one of the things that we were known for was the fact that we would always trade on exchange, we'd always be super liquid, et cetera, et cetera. And it is interesting to see whether it's in search of more opportunities or not, or whether it's in search of more diversification or not, it doesn't really matter. But there has certainly been a departure for a number of firms now away from this exchange-traded products only to off-exchange. And it's just a, it's just an observation, something people should be aware of, but I think it is a bit of a change in our industry. But then... I couldn't help noticing that you mentioned the word Credit Suisse in your comments. And that's another thing that is just interesting to me as an observation. We've had three blow-ups now in the last three months, GameStop, and then this, whatever it was, supply chain finance firm or fund called uh, Grinsill Capital. And then, of course, Egos, as some people call it. Three things, of course, Total return swaps was certainly involved in some of this and so on and so forth. But it's not so much the details of it. It's more the fact that we are now seeing some of these things blowing up. We're now seeing banks being hurt. I mean, Credit Suisse involved in at least two of the three. And this is not small change we're talking about. People talk about ties back to SoftBank. To be frank, I mean, I'm not inventing this. I'm just quoting what I hear. And you have other things that... that starts to concentrate back to certain things and it starts to smell a little bit like some of the things that led up to the, like when we saw Bear Stearns' funds blow up, that was really a year before the big crisis really occurred in 2008. They blew up in the summer of 2007 from memory at least. So I was just curious to know whether you think we're seeing some warning signs, some shots being fired that might actually turn into something um, much bigger down the road? I don't know. The thing that I do know is that we have a 100-year flood every couple of years. So there's always these risks and there's always stuff like that happening. I personally think that there is a, a bunch of leverage probably in the system, which is there because the price of money is essentially zero. And banks want to do that business because if it works, it's a very lucrative business for them. And it essentially allows clients with a big balance sheet to leverage to the tilt through total return swaps, through other leverage arrangements with their banks. And if you're really big, it's if I put my chip on red with a lot of leverage and it works, then great, then I make another billion. If black comes up and I lose, then it's really not my problem because I'm so big that I'm now systemically important and the, the bank has the problem. So... I think leverage is abundant. I'm not sure how to change that. Uh, I listened to a podcast earlier this week where people were saying maybe there should be a luxury tax on leverage. Yes, me too. I'm not so sure if I like that idea. You could say that my shots position and my euro dollar position is very leveraged. I don't want that to be taxed in any shape or form because that would hurt me. But I, I think that the price of money is the wrong price and is no longer zero. In the US, here in Europe, it is below zero. You, you, there's a bit of a spread on that, right? I mean, overnight euro interest rates is like minus 40 basis points. If you deposit, if you're a large client of a bank, you deposit money with a bank, 
you're losing at least another 30, 40, 50 basis points. So minus 40 basis points spread means minus 80. And but on the other side, they're not paying you positive interest, right? They're managing the bid offer spread such way that you're 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 not getting any benefit there. And this, I just I don't think that's sustainable in any way. And, and there's other markets developing. For instance, there's a yield curve on you know some of those digital currencies or digital assets and stable coins, which have interest rates and yields of eight, nine, ten percent. So there's a a parallel universe developing away from that fiat system. I know it's a tiny, teeny, tiny parallel universe, but it does have a different price tag for money. And I think that interest rates just they shouldn't be zero. It's like a hurdle rate, right? An interest rate is a hurdle rate. It's a hurdle rate for your investments. And if it's zero, you're just going to throw money at everything that's an asset. That's what we're seeing. Asset price inflation. Doesn't matter. Just give me your money, leverage, boom, off you go. I don't think that's healthy. No, but there's a couple of interesting things I would say in relation to that. We'll come to the crypto side because that was actually the article also that Jerry uh, mentioned. And since you are in-house crypto uh, expert, we'll I'll bring it up with you. But no, but I do think this thing about talk about obviously excessive leverage. We've seen certain things blow up, and now we've seen um, different market type action, uh, like the this, this short squeezes we've now seen, where essentially. That's most likely going to keep a lot of the traditional short sellers away from that market in total. That changes market structure because we need the short sellers for sure to provide liquidity. There's passive versus active. There's so many things that's changing. But one thing that I really think is interesting as we go through this phase, which is probably not over in terms of scandals in terms of blow-ups, in terms of this, that, and the other, it's very rare. And I can't. When I sit here talking to you, I, I actually can't think of one thing or one instance in this pure CTA space of a blow up where a manager just has blown up. I mean, sure, if it's a volatility manager, but I don't really call it. So it, let's define it as in the trend following space. And I think that's important because I think sometimes it's underappreciated how risk management is done when you do trend following, how many years of actual practical experience we as an industry have in managing one surprise after the other. Let's not forget that history is written by writing about one surprise after the no- another surprise after another surprise. That is history. So so I, so I hope people will start to appreciate that a little bit more. And also when we talked about, we've often seen these people highlighting higher returns in other strategies like oh, private equity, that's the best thing since sliced bread because look at the returns. And you can always find something that has provided a higher return. But it comes as a cost. It comes at a cost of lack of liquidity, lack of transparency, whatever it might be. And I think that, again, is something that CTAs are not getting a lot of credit for, the fact that we don't have any of these uh, quote-unquote advantages. I mean, we realize our risk every single day. We provide daily liquidity in many of our funds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So hopefully that's some of the things that we can use constructively in the dialogue with investors because I do think that investors are running way too much risk. And as Chris Cole and others point out from time to time, and I think they're absolutely right, 
most investors don't realize that their investment portfolio is not as diversified as they think it is. It's a basically a 95% short volatility portfolio and then maybe a little bit of long volatility stuff in there, but certainly not enough and certainly not enough if we're going to go through a crisis again. I think these blowups always have to do, in my opinion at least, they have always to do with leverage. Yeah, I'm not aware of any blow up that wasn't a leverage blow up. And of course, you have the the ones that are relatively easy to pick, which are the blow ups that relate to negative convexity, short volatility type of trades, where you have an increased rate of speed uh, and increased leverage as things actually move against you, which is the opposite of what we do as trend followers. We keep our losses short and we get easily burned and then we throw it away and we do the next trade. That is completely different there. But we've also seen, remember Amaranth, Niels, that wasn't a short volatility blow up, that was a futures blow up. They were long bull spreads in natural gas, long the front month, short some back month. Um, maybe it was December, April or something like that. I don't remember. But of course, this there's a leverage trade because you're now trading a spread and you're trading a bunch more of these spreads in order to get to your volatility. I don't want to call it target, but in order to... to to realize the volatility that you want to realize. And boom, if that spread moves the other way, you're out of business, which is essentially what happened to them. LTCM, spread trading, off the run versus on the run bonds, a couple of other things, arbitraging in the fixed income markets with futures against cash, massively leveraged positions, boom. It's always there, leverage. So you have to be careful with these things. And I think we are, as trend-following traders, we are very careful with that leverage. We know it exists in the futures contract and it's great that it exists in the futures contracts because it allows us to size things appropriately relative to each other and trade many different markets. But we also know that we that there's like a limit to what it is, to, to how large we can size these positions. That limit is different for every single one of us. I was absolutely amazed by the conversation that you also referenced with Jerry about Purple Valley Capital, Don, and I forgot the last name, but I mean, a, a lot of respect, kudos to him. I'd really love to meet him at some point and, and just have a chat to, to trade that way is fantastic. But it also strikes me as he, how can he not have been very close to a point of ruin with that drawdown? And how large did he trade and position size at that point in time? Was it teeny tiny or was it still, ah, it doesn't matter, I'll just go back to that blackjack table and play the same game? I don't know. But then that could result in a blow up too, even though you're just a trend-following trader. Yeah, and I think you can expand a little bit on this, right? You could say that there are always three things, or I say always, I can't say that for sure, but I think there are three things that usually, probably 99% of the time, is present in a blow up, and that is leverage liquidity or lack thereof, and concentration. And so, yes, you're absolutely right about Amaroth. That was a CTA, but to me, it wasn't a trend follower and it was mm -hmm. completely concentrated in one contract, NatGas. So, so, so when you look at what we do, yes, we have leverage, but we do have liquidity and we don't have the concentration. And there's definitely times where you can get, where you can have a little bit of one of these and not blow up. But there are also times where you pretty much only need to have too much of one of them and you will blow up. It depends on the environment, the markets. I mean, clearly, if you 
were too leveraged last year in the crisis or had too much concentration or had no liquidity last year in March, you probably would have blown up just by being on the wrong side of one of these threes. But leverage, liquidity, and concentration is usually always present. And I think that is one thing our industry has done well over decades, and that is really to manage these three things to a point where, as I said, I I can't remember a fully diversified trend-following manager ever blowing up. I mean, we will have our drawdowns, but we're not going to blow up the way we see some of these strategies uh, do. But anyway, let me move on because time is flying. We're already 50 minutes in. I wanted to, yeah, yeah, just real quick one point on CTAs moving away from the futures markets. And I think there's, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to mention uh, two other venues where I think CTAs are now becoming active in. And it's OTCFX is that's that's old news. Then you have the OTC things that I've just mentioned with trading lookalike futures and these type of things and and maybe interest rate swaps and swaptions and whatnot. So is the relationships with banks? Then you have CTAs and remember Jerry when he once said he asked his clients whether the client would be okay if he traded stocks and the client said no, you're a futures trader. And okay, then he probably started trading single stock futures as opposed to single stocks, but. Okay, so single stocks, not a futures contract, but a cleared security, clear stream, most of the stuff here in Europe, etc. So not a problem. But then there's other things. There's, for instance, if, if you're now in digital assets, are you trading the futures contract on Bitcoin on the CME? Yes, you can do that, but maybe you don't want to do that. And I guess we'll be talking about that in a minute because it's priced relatively expensive, expensively relative to spot. And so maybe therefore you're trading spot. But then the question is, where do you trade spot and how do you hold that and how do you incorporate that into your fund or managed account structure? Or do you find other securities or tracking products that reference Bitcoin or Ether or whatever it is that you want to trade? Emissions, for instance. Emissions is a contract that I personally trade as a futures contract on ICE. But if you look at the forward structure of that contract, it is very linear, but it, it does have a basis of about 1% to 1.5% a year, which means it's it's drifting higher at a rate that is greater than the overnight rate. And there is a, therefore a funding rate, a positive funding rate implied in that contract. There is a way to avoid paying that rate. Essentially, if you're long, I'm long right now, which means I'm paying that, I'll be sliding down that curve. There's a way to avoid that. You can open a and register an account and trade spot emissions. And it's actually not that difficult and not that complex and absolutely not costly to do. So it's like just yeah, looking looking beyond the edge of your desk and say, okay, there's a different way of doing that. I can save 1% and why would I not do that? And actually pay cash, which I don't want anyways, because if I have the cash, I'm losing it on the, I'm paying 30 basis points spread on with my custodian or clearing broker. So I'd rather pay to buy the spot emissions and use my money for that. And it has net benefit of, say, 1.5% a year. Great. But now you, again, have the question, how do I integrate a spot emissions trading account into my CTA managed account structure or fund? And then finally, and then I'll stop, is some really interesting markets in, in, in the power and gas space, physical power and gas. Power markets, I think, are fantastic. And there's also some spread trades. I, I spoke to Jerry about that. I'm now getting uh, much more active in these spread type of dynamics. Trading carbon against power. Power is a driver for carbon. And so there's some very interesting, I think, relationships available and diversification benefits to be realized for trend-following CTAs in power markets, for instance. And power markets are super liquid. Felix, German power liquid, US power liquid, different zones, Japanese power. But 
they're not traded as futures contracts. Some of them are, but the liquidity in those futures contracts is teeny tiny. And the data that you get through Bloomberg or through ICE or through the EEX or whatever you're using for that is really bad. And you can get, but it's different technology. It's different systems. It's Trayport, it's Sphera, right? It's kind of like different interfaces that give you access to the spot markets for European power, for US power, et cetera, and also gas. So you have to make the investment, but then it's there and it's super liquid. So it ties into our, to the next topic we just want to touch on briefly, I think, before, because we have questions uh, waiting for us. But And that is, I mean, for example, why do you think the future, why do you think, for example, with power and stuff like that, that the futures markets haven't really been able to capture that volume if it's such a liquid market on the spot to side? Yeah, it's probably, it historically has developed that way. Remember that it is a 24-7, 365 market. It, it doesn't close on a Sunday. It's like Bitcoin. It just continues yeah. to trade and yeah. trade because yeah. if you pluck your iPhone into the socket, you want it to be charged, no matter if it's Easter Monday. And so, therefore, it's set up in a completely different way. Right. And it, I guess, has just developed and stayed like that. And there's the specialized players, the physical commodity traders, they're in those markets, the large banks, they're in those markets, even though a lot of them have retreated. Right. And what, what I find interesting is that it's this is the barrier of entry, I think, for many firms or for many traders such as us who are used to futures and stocks and the, the usual plumbing of our financial systems and how those contracts and markets work. If you then are asked to look at trading physical power or gas, physical TTF, Dutch gas, or Felix German base and peak power, and you go, well, how do I do that? This is no, oh, it doesn't have a clearer. It is, well, what, I need to send you messages and Eddie fact messages and I need to have a balancing circle and report to the TSO and the grid operator. And it's like, oh, well, no, I don't, I don't know any of that. I'll stop right there. I find it interesting and, and I, I always like these challenges. Like, well, I definitely want to have a look at that now. I want to crack that nut. And if there's physical commodity trading firms that can trade in these markets, it just shows to me that it is doable. It is not impossible to do it. So question mark is, the question is, how do you do it? And you just work your way through and you start understanding it. You'll then start understand how much it will cost you to do that, of what you need in terms of infrastructure and that type of stuff. And again, you can then make a, a decision as to whether that's worthwhile for you to do or not. But I think those markets are fascinating and it sounds like, I mean, CTAs historically were always inside the alternative investment industry. It sounds like classical CTAs are moving away from alternative, becoming very mainstream compared to where we're heading now with all these new markets. But staying with the new markets, staying a little bit with the crypto side, Jerry sent an article over about this, and you've talked about it before, quote unquote, you can get significant risk-free rates of return in that space, in the, the crypto space. And, and the article asks, why has this not been arbitraged out? Without spending too much time on it, because we have the questions, do you have a, a thought about why these quote-unquote massive risk-free rates exist in, in that space? And, what, and usually things are never risk-free, so where is the risk? Yes, good question. I, I have a couple of ideas as to why the basis is so strongly positive. Positive here means the market is priced in a very steep contango. By the way, this is true for Bitcoin and also for Ethereum. 
and for many of the other coins as well, if there is a forward structure for them available. But let's just say Bitcoin and Ethereum and focus on Bitcoin here. So Bitcoin futures trade on the CME and they trade on the on backed on ICE. Different contracts. The CME contract is uh, five coins. So it has a five contract size and the back contract is one coin. By the way, I think in May, the CME is going to launch a micro contract, which is yeah. one coin or one tenth of a coin. I don't know, but something smaller. Okay, so let's start off with the interest of institutional investors and just people becoming attracted to being long Bitcoin. And in the absence of a an ETF in the United States. Still, there is not an ETF. There's GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. There's the Grayscale Ethereum Trust, etc., which, by the way, now trades a discount to NAV. They always used to be trading at a substantial premium to NAV, but there is no ETF with subscriptions, redemption features, and these type of things, and liquidity. There is tracking products here in Europe. There's tracking products in Switzerland, in Sweden. I'm not sure about Asia, but not in the US. In Canada, they now have ETFs. Right. In Canada, still not they in the have US. now, yeah. So if you're an institutional investors and investor and you want to be long Bitcoin, but you don't feel comfortable with being long spot Bitcoin because you find it weird, you have a wallet address and a private key and it's like risky, you lose that thing, you're on the hook for it. Or you're, say, your corporate that you work for, say you're working for a big pension fund or a big corporate and you just ask your treasury and accounting people, hey, I'm going to be buying Bitcoin on Binance or on Coinbase. They go like, well, what are we going to do with it now? We, we cannot put it through the risk systems. We don't know how to account for that thing. We need to ask the tax people and just forget. But you can buy the futures contract because we're trading Boon futures. So this is just futures contract. That's fine. So I guess this is one part which is now slowly going away because there's more products available for people to get access. And people, I think, are becoming more familiar with access and, and holding spot Bitcoin like Tesla, like MicroStrategy. But I think it used to be a main driver for that positive basis. Okay, point one. Point two, it is a very capital-intensive arbitrage, that basis trade. And certainly not risk-free if you do it on the CME. And let me explain why. First of all, the margin requirement on a short position in futures contract, uh, contracts is very high. Say 40, 50, you know, 60% or even higher depending on the broker that you're using. So the capital efficiency isn't very great. Essentially what your broker is saying is, hey, Bitcoin could essentially double overnight. It could have a jump event on a weekend where the futures contract is not trading. And by the way, from Friday to Saturday, today, Saturday, Bitcoin has moved from uh, 57 or 58,000 to 61,000 this morning. So it's, yeah, it does do stuff on the weekend, it moves. And what that means is if, if it jumps higher, then you're on the hook for that variation margin payment and your clearing broker may say, well, I'm not sure if you can actually make that payment. So I have very high margin requirements for you. And because you cannot hold your spot Bitcoin with interactive brokers, for instance, if that's the broker you're using or with RJO, they cannot net it. They cannot give you any benefit for that. And they wouldn't give you the benefit because they say, well, look at the CME terms. That is a cash settled contract against the Bitcoin reference rate. I cannot use your physical Bitcoin. I don't want to say physical Bitcoin, your spot Bitcoin that you, even if you had it in my account, I couldn't use that to deliver against the contract. By the way, on the backed contract, you can do that. You can hold a contract. You can hold the Bitcoin in the backed warehouse. Uh, and that should make some, give you some netting benefit. But on the CME, it just doesn't. So it's very 
capital intensive to do. And therefore, there's not that much money behind it, I think. Okay. And then thirdly, the reason the basis is priced highly is also because you're essentially using a bank or broker's balance sheet to do that because they're the counterparty of that trade. And I guess their their risk capital costs for this contract, they're substantially higher than it is for the euro dollar contract. And they're also looking at that from a hedging point of view. If, if I'm buying a Bitcoin futures contract and there is not an immediate other party, I know somebody will be selling it to me, but if, if I'm buying and it's not you, Neil, selling and you have an actual short interest, then you know what the banks and the brokers do is, okay, I'm, I'm going to be selling that, but I'll be delta hedging it. And in the same way that works for many of the other markets. But delta hedging the, the, the Bitcoin futures contract into settlement isn't easily done because it doesn't settle to one point where you could say it's 8 p.m. and it settles at that price. And you can therefore go into the spot market to one of the liquid exchanges, FTX, Coinbase, whatever, and buy Bitcoin at exactly that point in time. No, it settles against a one-hour Viva. And Bitcoin is extremely volatile. So that VVOP is also very volatile and it you know, can have a very high tracking error on your hedge. And that is also priced into it. The hedgeability is just not perfect and it's not easy. And the balance sheet costs are high and institutional investors have been on the long side of that contract. And it's a capital intensive basis trade, as I've mentioned before, that is not without risk because it may, it, if a jump event happens over a weekend or overnight, it may kick you out of the position and you're facing a very severe variation margin call. Yeah. For people who, I mean, before the US ETFs comes along, which may not take that long, it seems, but before they do that, you mentioned, and I noticed that as well, that there is now a Canadian uh, ETF, which I believe is, is quote unquote, physically backed with Bitcoin and a few others. But do you know what, I mean, for people who are interested in trading Bitcoin, but don't want to go the whole you know, nine yards with having their own wallets and all of that, which trackers uh, seems to have done well in actually delivering the performance of, of Bitcoin and still be liquid and all of that stuff? I think that the tracking products that we have here in Europe are great. There's a uh... There's one, there's one in with, Sweden, right? There's there's, one, there's in one in Sweden that is very large. There's one in Germany that is has been in the past couple of weeks one of the most liquid exchange traded products every day by trading volume. It's uh, the ticker is BTCE. It's issued by the Bitcoin Issuance Group. It started not even a year ago. It now has more than a billion. I think one point three billion euros. And it's really tracking one for one. There's not, not, nothing like a, a, a basis, uh, sorry, a, a discount or premium to NAV, as you can see it with Grayscale, which is a trust. Grayscale yeah. is yeah. a it's container close, close that fun. eats yeah. Bitcoin and never gives any of those Bitcoin back. It yeah. keeps them for all time, unless now somebody comes in and says, you know what, I'm going to like a Carl Icahn type of trade and go like, oh, that thing is at minus 10 to NAV. I'm yeah. going to take such a position that I can break the trust and dissolve it and realize that 10% discount. Grayscale, by the way, I think has intentions to migrating and changing into an ETF. And then, of course, if you have the subscription redemption features, you're essentially able to burn shares and do in-kind redemptions and subscriptions. That will force the thing to stay close to NAV. And that is what's happening here with those tracking products in Europe, which are not ETFs. The ETFs as per, right? They're ET, they're exactly. They're 
exchange-traded commodities, exchange-traded notes, they're essentially wrapped into a note structure that is backed by a spot Bitcoin. And it's akin to an ETF, but it's technically not an ETF. And European rules and regulations, the way they're written right now, will never make it possible that there's going to be a true ETF in Europe tracking Bitcoin because Bitcoin is not a permissible instrument for an ETF. But yeah, you can put it into an ETC, you can put it into an ETN, and that is what those firms are doing. Venac is now here, a UETP company, and they're growing. And you already see fees coming down. They started with 2% management fee. And you can say 2%, it doesn't really matter that much on an underlying that has 100% volatility. But there's more competition and it's like a honeypot. And there's the next CTP and the next CTP and yet another one. And before it, fees are down to like 1% or 75 basis points, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think the new Canadian one is down to 1%. And they already they're all they they've been out for like three weeks and it's more than a billion dollars as far as mm -hmm. I can tell from their website. And so, so here in Europe, retail traders can trade those products. They're yeah. I don't know they cost fifty euros a share or something like that, and and it's a retail product. If you are an institutional investor, say you are a big insurance firm and you want to have exposure to Bitcoin, then there is specialized institutional call them hedge funds, asset management firms, that have tracking products uh, available. Also, by the way, in large size. I'll just mention two names, Pantera and Nickel Digital. They're in that business. Now Skybridge, I think, as well. And they have vehicles. It's not an ETP, technically. It's a Cayman fund structure, for instance. But if you're an institutional investor and you're holding assets anyways in Cayman vehicles, and a lot of institutional investors do, then you can buy those products and they have they have lower fees. They have lower yeah. fees. And and you can like also negotiate, okay, at what point do I get in? What's my reference price? Work your way into that thing. So it's cool. Which means just summing that up, there are avenues and, and ways available for investors of all kinds, I think, now to get exposure to Bitcoin, even if you don't want to have a wallet. Yeah. Yeah. True. All right, let's jump to the questions. So even though we've already been going for more than an hour, but we will get to the questions. First one is from Jim. I am new to the podcast in the past couple of months and enjoying the show. A lot of interesting threads have been explored. To focus on one, I recall listening to you describe using more than one trading system, which I understand to have signals based on a faster time period uh, and a slower time period. A little, little trend-following method diversification. Then I thought, why not pair a trend-following system with something more uncorrelated? I started toying with the idea of pairing a trend-following system with a mean reversion system. Any thoughts on that? Have you tried employing something like that? So, do you want to share your thoughts on that, Moritz? Yes, I mean, I'm happy to, to say a few words on that. The Say the, the backbone of that idea is, is actually a rational one. Find things that are uncorrelated or even negatively correlated with positive expected returns and combine them into a nice portfolio. So the idea of combining a counter trend or mean reversion trading system with a trend following trading system is, oh yeah, that that jumps right at you. As far as I'm concerned, when I look at the mean reversion trading systems on a standalone basis, I stop liking them. For most part, they would be uncorrelated or even negatively correlated to my trend-following trading system. But when something really bad happens, 
I have found out that they flip in terms of correlation, and all of a sudden they both go down in a severe event. And the mean reversion systems, they tend to have the, the propensity of being extremely negatively skewed in their return distributions, which is it's not exactly the same as being short volatility and short the 90% strike put uh, on a one-month basis all the time over and over again. But in a just use the most simple mean reversion system, which is like a buy the dip type of thing. Yeah, you can buy the dip and you can define rules and say buy on the after the third down day or buy after the fourth down day or something like that or buy after three down days of more than 1%. Simple stuff like that. Very easy to backtest. And you'll see some nice things, but you'll also see some very nasty surprises. And it kind of like becomes difficult, I think, to hold on to that system because it burns you at exactly the point in time when you don't want to get burned and then forces you to do it again and do it again. And I don't like that behavior, to be honest. And therefore, I stayed away from them and just said, okay, no, I don't want that to be a combination with my trend-following trading system. I'd rather look for more diversification, for instance, through different timeframes or more markets within my trend-following trading system, where I have the opposite behavior. It's like positively skewed. Remember that straddle-like of payout, right? The convexity on monthly returns, positive convexity on monthly returns. All these type of things are very nice. So I don't want to give up on them. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I concur with everything you said uh, there. And, and to you, Jim, I, and again, I think f from our point of view, we would say that yeah, you can blend different things, but not inside a trend-following approach. I mean, a trend-following approach has a certain profile. If you have a larger portfolio and you want to have other strategies or other long-only strategies, whatever it might be, sure, it can form part of a, of a portfolio. But as as Moritz says, I think you definitely need to be uh, cognizant of the quote-unquote volatility profile these things have and make sure you don't end up with too much of that negative volatility-type profile, which I referenced earlier in, in, in our conversation today because I think that's where the risk lies that people think it looks great until it blows up uh, in your face but yeah I mean we are in favor of diversification in general but not in I mean but there's a limit to what kind of diversification we would want inside our trend following system but I appreciate the question Jim John John writes in I love the show and it has been invaluable as I prepare my own trend following system as a retail investor can you talk about the methodology you use to select the contract month you trade and when you decide to roll? Rob has a detailed blog about choosing contracts and how uh, a roll affects both open positions and historical price series. Different markets have very different amounts of future month liquidity and have some seasonal components. I wonder how the rest of the regular contributors approach the topic contract selection in different markets. And from my point of view on that, John, I can just say... I would not spend too much time trying to perfect this because it's relatively simple. The system that I've always used for historical data and back-adjusted data is CSI. I think actually Moritz uh, might all also use that or, or some of the other people here on the podcast. And frankly, once you've identified which... I mean, there for certain commodities, there are some commodities that will trade every single calendar month. And there are some commodities that only trade three or four during the year. So you'll easily identify which ones they are. 
And you can also, of course, set the system to basically roll when open interest shifts from one contract to another. But you could also, even if you just set it to more or less the same time, so that could be like the 12th day uh, of the month before the contract expires. That could be one setting in your system. And may, it may not be that the volume has shifted from one contract to another exactly on that day. But as a retail investor, it's not going to matter whether you have the most liquid of the two contracts every single day. As long as there's enough volume for you to do your business, you should be fine. So that's how I approach it. Make it simple. Don't spend too much time in 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 being too clever about that. So any thoughts on your side, Moritz? Yeah, I look at every market that I trade in detail with uh, regard to the contracts that I want to trade. For instance, on some of the markets, I think you have to watch out. There's, I think the silver February contract is listed. You would easily pull it through CSI or Bloomberg or whatever it is that you're using, but it's, it's actually a liquid and nobody really trades it. You can see it, but you want to stay away from it. So this is one thing. Then there's other markets where, let's just say the Kakao or the Hang Seng, where there's a lot of concentration only in front month liquidity and you have to be in that front month and you also have to hold that front month until relatively close to expiration like a two or three day window and then you roll it and you want to be you want to be there in that spread market when the roll is actually traded and roll out of it then and other markets have a much more liquid futures curve, the short-term interest rate markets, the commodity markets, etc. And there you can actually design things that work for you, which you think makes sense. You could say, okay, I don't want to be rolling too often because I'm paying bid offer every time I do the roll and I'm paying commissions. So do I really need to trade every monthly crude oil contract? Or could I do something where I'm only trading every quarter or I'm only trading June and DEC? And thus, I have two rolls per year as opposed to 12. That's one thing. And the other thing, but this is probably a more advanced topic, is on those markets where you have a very liquid curve, say crude, for instance, you could actually, and this is what, what I'm doing, is say, oh, this is now no longer one market. I have many different mini crude oil markets. I have crude oil front month. I have crude oil second month. I have crude oil constant 12 month out. I have crude oil 36 month out. And how about I just create a market for all of those? And I do. And I try to trend following system on all of those markets and see if there's any diversification I can get from that. Very little, but some. There is some because the curve dynamics farther out on crude and corn and net gas, and those, by the way, are also impacted by seasonality, are much different than when you're always pointing to the front month. So you're getting something for the work that you're putting in by pointing to different parts of the curve and then incorporating that into your system. Say, yeah, I know it's still crude oil. If I'm long, if I'm long June now and I'm also long September and December and deck 22, I want to incorporate that into my risk framework and not take a full position on each of those, which is why I call the mini crude markets. I take a small position on those. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. But Again, John, just uh, make sure you don't spend too much time once you've figured it out, I would say. Last question uh, today is from Mark. Mark writes, If the philosophy of trend following assumes that we do not make predictions because the future is uncertain, why does the entire industry use historical volatility for sizing and stops 
with ATR stops. If we assume we don't know the future, then we should be consistent and assume we don't know future correlations and future volatility. How can someone say that they don't know future trend direction, but does know future volatility and correlation, and therefore should have equal weight all markets all the time and never use volatility-based exits like ATR. At first, Jerry will argue following, maybe Dennis was wrong, maybe the assumptions of using volatility is any way was a mistake from day one, and the entire CTA world hasn't questioned this assumption deep enough and just layered on without understanding the true philosophy. Think of how much extra contracts that you would put on on a low-vol market versus a high-vol market but that assumes low vol is permanent. If the market explodes with volatility, shouldn't that be assumed as a possibility? The philosophy of trend following is that nothing is permanent and things change drastically and things that have never happened before happen in the future. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And we don't know future volatility. We don't know future correlation. And uh, I have no way of having a perfect forecast in the same way that I cannot forecast price. But I need to use an estimator. I need to use something for orientation and reference. And for me, this is the ATR or a volatility measure that is looking back in time for a couple of days and weeks in order to get an estimate for how that market is uh, zigging and zagging and what ranges it trades. Sometimes you are surprised and things jump. Remember, this was Frank in 2015. Low volatility, low ATR all the time, and then all of a sudden, boof, like a rubber band that snaps. And you can see many of these examples if you look at all those markets, natural gas. I mean, there's, I don't know. I mean, it probably happened to all of those markets, right? All of a sudden, you have an event and the uh, volatility measure that you used at the point of trade inception is no longer what the market is now throwing to you. Such is life. I have not found a way to to be any better than that. And, and I'm not sure if, if it can be done in a better way because I don't have perfect foresight. I have heard of people saying or using implied option volatility to position size their trend following CTA program. So you look at the options of the S&P 500 and say the implied volatility is a better estimator for future volatility than the historical volatility over the, say, past 20, 30, 40, whatever days. Maybe that is true, but it is. it doesn't have a, it, it doesn't have a massive effect. I've tested it. it. It gives me the same thing for my trend-following system, whether I use implied or realized. And realized is just so much easier to handle. I don't have to look at the options market or I don't have to look at the VIX. And therefore, I don't do it. But yes, I'm aware that every once in a while it uh, flips around and things become wild. But uh, I have a stop in place. That's it. <laughs> well, so I have a slightly different uh, take. Not that I disagree with anything you said, but I, I have a different way of answering your question, Mark, uh, I think. So the way I look at it is, first of all, the way my model portfolio works and the way Moritz and Jerry works, correlations doesn't really come into it. I mean, it's not part of the how we position size, right? It's We've already chosen our markets. We want to trade them the same. So, so correlations actually, unlike a VAR model or something like that, where it would have could have an impact correlations in 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 let's call them the classical original type trend following systems play much less of a role certainly in the day-to-day -day stuff the other thing i would say is that i mean you could be right mark but i think 
there is not lots of of advantage in trying to overcomplicate what you do in terms of trend following. I think the reason why it still works after all these years and what makes it really hard as well is we're trying to take something that could be made incredibly complex, but we're trying to simplify it. And so we have to make some choices. And one of those choices is, for example, yeah, we'll just pick the volatility of the market on the day of entry. Okay, and it's perfectly fine. It you know, makes not a lot of difference uh, in the long run. And then thirdly, you could say, and as we do that, we get a comfort level in how we do things. So we test it, and whatever we test is whatever we trade. So I think that it's not really a question of, is there a better way? There may be, but the way we do it right now is pretty good anyway. So why bother trying to get too clever, so to speak? But I'm not saying that there aren't other ways. I'm just saying I think the way it's been done, the way Jerry does it, Moritz, and and the way my model portfolio works is perfectly fine and it's simple. And maybe that really is the key to why it's robust at the end of the day. So that's how I would answer it. I will, however, disclose what performance is like as of Thursday evening. So Friday, I think was probably, I don't know, mixed, maybe slightly up day. But anyways, and the Beta 50 index so far in April, up half a percent, up 3.07% for the year. Sokjian trend index, uh, sorry, Sokjian CT index up 68 basis points, up three and a quarter for the year. Trend following index is down slightly 14 basis points for the month, up almost 4% for the years. And the short-term traders index is down 10 basis points for April, up 1.88% for the year. So the trend index is much more in line with my own trend barometer, which I mentioned in the beginning. It's a bit weak at the moment, and that suggests, or, or that is also what we see in the index of trend follows right now. Of course, MSCI World had another good start to the month, up 3.5% in April, up 8% now in the <laughs> for the year. But for a change, the world government bond index is up 20 basis points so far. That's pretty much, I think, what we can squeeze into our conversation. We certainly appreciate you if you're still hanging in there with us, but we hope it was useful and fun. It certainly was fun for me to chat with Moritz. Now, if you like these conversations, maybe you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review because they really do help us. And next week, I'm back with Jerry again. We've had to shuffle around over Easter break. So he's back again next week. So make sure you send the questions that you have to info at toptradersonplot.com and we will make sure to, to bring them to you. From Moritz and me, thanks ever so much for being with us. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.